G'day and welcome to the Dolby Anglican Podcast. My name is David and I'm part of the ministry team at Dolby Anglican Parish. We're a church that's all about knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. And if you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit anglicandolby.org.au. This week's sermon is part of a brand new series called Mark, Who Is This Man? And it's going to take us through the Gospel of Mark. And today we're focusing on Mark 1, verses 1 to 13, and who is preparing the way. We hope you enjoy the sermon. Mark 1, verse 1. The beginning of the Gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John came, baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothes made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the desert, and he was in the desert forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Well, friends, today we are starting this new series. Um, It's called Who Is This Man? Um, And great things come in small packages. And the Gospel of Mark is the shortest account of Jesus' life that we have in the Bible. But it really packs a punch. It can be called the quickfire gospel. Mark was written by Peter's friend, John Mark who wrote down what Peter told him about Jesus' life. There is no Christmas in Mark. He says nothing about Jesus' birth, and he doesn't touch much on what Jesus taught, what he said. He prefers an action-packed account of the things Jesus did. Mark records more miracles than all the other Gospels, and it seems he wrote for Gentiles, non-Jews like us, because he explains a lot of Jewish customs to help the reader along. Over the coming year, we're going to journey through the Gospel of Mark, asking the question, who is this man? We'll work our way through the greatest story ever told and come to a personal answer to who Jesus is today. So strap yourself in for a wild ride through the quickfire Gospel of Mark And be prepared to wrestle with the big question of who Jesus is and what this means for me. Now, as we begin looking at the gospel of Mark, it's worth thinking about what the word gospel means. 
gospel quite simply means good news. And back in the day, it had everything to do with a big announcement that affected everyone. In 490 BC, the Persian Empire invaded Greece at a place called Marathon. The Persians far outnumbered the Athenian army. There are about 25,000 Persians um, with ships and chariots. And uh, the Athenian army, which represented Greece, only had about 10,000. And they met at Marathon in battle. Legend has it that a herald called Pheidippides... I practiced that a lot. Pheidippides um, was called to run to the warrior kingdom of Sparta and ask for their help. He ran the 240 kilometers to Sparta over two days, and when he got there, he begged the Spartans for help. The Spartans said no. They were on holidays. So Pheidippides ran 240 kilometers back to Marathon to deliver the bad news. Incredibly, though, the Athenians managed to win the battle without the help of the Spartans. So Pheidippides was again called to run 40 kilometers from Marathon to Athens to deliver the good news, the gospel. That's where we get our marathon. Marathon running comes from that tradition, that 40 kilometers. The marathon is 42 kilometers, which is that distance from Athens to the city of Marathon. When Pheidippides arrived in Athens, he proclaimed to the anxious leaders in the city, joy to you, we've won. And then he died, breathing his last breath, which is why you shouldn't run marathons, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) He died, breathing his last with the words, joy to you. This was his gospel. This story illustrates for us how loaded Mark's words are when he writes the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. For Mark, the story of Jesus is more important than a great victory. It's the greatest news ever delivered. Mark begins this good news with a prologue. It's a story that sets the scene for the greatest story. For Mark, the story doesn't begin at Christmas. There are no angels, shepherds, or wise men rocking up for a surprise baby shower. Instead, there's a thousand-year-old prophecy fulfilled in verse 2 from Isaiah. Isaiah said, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. This is great news. The people of Israel had been waiting for God's messenger, someone more important than Pheidippides, someone who would bulldoze a runway for the Lord so that he could land among his people. They'd been waiting thousands of years, more, for God to send his chosen saviour. And the good news is, he's come. And look with me at verse 4. Mark continues, And so John came baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
The action in this gospel turned not to a high place of power, a place like Rome, or to a religious capital, a place like Jerusalem. Instead, Mark takes us to a muddy creek in the scrub and to a man named Johnny B. Now, baptism at the time was for Gentiles. It was for non-Jews. If you were a non-Jew who wanted to become a Jew, you'd have to jump through some hoops. For men, one of these was circumcision. This was to show that you were leaving your old life behind and joining God's chosen people. And it would all culminate in this washing, this ritual washing in beautiful, clear water. John flips this around and says, all people everywhere need to repent. In verse 6 we read, John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. John doesn't look like a religious professional. He's the son of a priest, but he's not a priest. He doesn't have nice clothes, and he doesn't live in a beautiful house. He eats bugs and wild honey like the prophets of the Old Testament. He gives up creature comforts to follow God's calling and to fulfill God's word. John is the perfect starting point for the quickfire gospel because his message is filled with fire. John preached fire and brimstone, turn or burn stuff. He told good religious Jews who fulfilled the law that they were going to hell and they should turn their lives back to God or risk being shut out of his goodness for all eternity. The most powerful thing about his message, though, was that people actually listened. People actually changed. Liars became people of integrity. Thieves became honest and bullies became saints. The other powerful thing about John's message was that he didn't think he was the main show. He was a powerful preacher and he gathered a huge following and people changed their lives because of him. But he says, I'm not the main show. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the one God promised to send. Instead, he says in verse 7, After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. It was a servant's job to tie the sandals of the master. But John says, I'm not even worthy of touching this man. I'm not even worthy of being his slave. And it's not that John has low self-esteem. He's not denigrating himself. Instead, he's elevating the one who is coming. This coming Messiah won't just wash people with water. He will immerse them in the Spirit of God Almighty. Can you feel the excitement? Can you feel the anticipation? Can you feel the joy? This is good news. The gospel has landed. And Mark won't leave us waiting for the main show. Instead, he says in verse 9, At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth. Mark loves these, these repeated frames that help the narrative keep going. At that time, immediately, next, at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. John's just said he's unworthy of touching the Messiah, 
But here comes Jesus. Again, not from some famous place, but from the little town of Nazareth to be baptized in a muddy muddy creek by a guy who eats bugs. Here again, we see the humble setting of the good news. The gospel doesn't come to only the powerful, rich, or talented people. It comes for all of us. And the gospel comes as a person, someone you can relate to. It's not an idea simply. It's not an ethereal um, piece of wisdom that you have to get in some high tower. Instead, you can come and meet it. God in a person, God in the flesh, Jesus the Messiah. He is the good news. And while he doesn't have sins to repent of, he gets baptized to identify with fallen people like you and like me. And if this moment weren't wonderful enough, suddenly Mark tells us, as Jesus was coming out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. If you ever come across a person who says that the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity, isn't in the Bible, take them here. Take them to Mark 1. Here, as Jesus is baptized, he comes out of the water and he sees heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Here, God the Father is answering the prophet's call in Isaiah 64.1. Isaiah, we looked at it a couple of weeks ago. Isaiah says, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Here, God is doing just that. God rips open heaven and comes down in person as Jesus Christ. Then the Holy Spirit fills him and equips him for the work he has to do. You see, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they're all there working miraculously and wonderfully. And finally, God the Father, who is the perfect example for all fathers, affirms his love and his delight in his Son. I often get to share this passage at baptisms, and I love to highlight how at this point, Jesus hasn't healed anyone. He hasn't fed anyone. He hasn't taught anyone about God or died on the cross to pay for our sins. And yet God the Father loves him and is pleased with him. It's unconditional love. Friends, even though you and I certainly aren't Jesus, we're not perfect and we're not the saviour of the world, we can still know that we are objects of God's perfect love. If we can begin the new year knowing that God loves us enough to send his son into the world to die for us, we'll start 2024 in a good place. The same Holy Spirit that was there at the beginning of creation, calmly hovering over the waters in Genesis 1.1, now alights on Jesus and fills him with power for the work ahead. As we begin 2024, we need to ask the Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us into God's purposes for our lives. 
Sure, we can set our own goals, we can plan our own plans, and we can make New Year's resolutions. But if we're not letting the Holy Spirit fill us, lead us, guide us, and change us, our plans have no purpose and will ultimately come to nothing. As an interesting side note, I've always thought that the crowds around Jesus would have seen this momentous moment. Like if you'd been standing on the banks of the River Jordan, you would have seen um, the Holy Spirit descending on it like a dove and you would have heard the voice from heaven. But if you look at the words in Mark, it's actually only Jesus who hears these words. As Jesus was coming out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open, not the crowds. It was only Jesus who heard God the Father speaking. It was only Jesus who saw the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Chances are to outsiders, Jesus' baptism was about as flashy as your baptism. A bit of water on the head and off you go. What I take from this is a reminder that every baptism God does is special. Every time a new person is welcomed into the kingdom of God, God does something supernatural, whether we have eyes to see it or not. Heaven and earth touch. At our baptism, God called us and set us up for mission. We need to ask the Holy Spirit to help us discover more about who we are in Christ and about our calling in Christ. If you're baptized, if you're baptized, if you're a Baptist, <laughs> if you're baptized, you have gospel ministry to do. We are all called and we are all sent. This morning at the end of the service, uh, we're going to do something very special. Um, a big part of our church, a big part of our youth group, a big part of who we are as a church family, um, Riley is going to head up to England um, to serve in a school up there. And so we're going to pray for him and we're going to commission him and we're going to send him with God's blessing um, as he takes this massive step um, as a young man and as a man in Christ. And um, it's amazing how his journey um, really happened through, through baptism, through his baptism. Um, and it's amazing how he is taking that call um, to the ends of the earth as far as we're concerned. Mark opens his book with a baptism because this is where Jesus' ministry really begins. For 30 years, he's been preparing for this moment, and God's been getting him ready. But here the clock starts. Jesus only has about three years to save the world. He will do it with his Father's blessing and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And yet there's a final twist in this prologue. You'd think that Jesus would now go public. He'd start calling disciples to himself. He'd start drawing crowds in big cities. Instead, Mark 1.12 tells us, at once, there it is again, at once, Mark just keeps the action going. 
But strangely, he doesn't go to the center of action. At once, the Spirit sent him, that's Jesus, out into the desert, and he was in the desert 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. The Spirit doesn't send Jesus to a five-star hotel. Instead, he goes to the wilderness for 40 days, like the people of Israel were in the wilderness for 40 years. And there he's tempted by Satan. Mark doesn't go into detail about the temptation, but from Matthew and Luke we learn that the devil tries to distract him from his mission and get him off track. Friends, in the coming year, Satan will try to get you off track. He'll find you when you're feeling lonely and weak, and he'll try to draw you away from God and from his good purposes for your life. He'll tell you you're nothing and no one. And he'll tell you that God isn't real or God isn't important enough for you to do the things you need to do in Christ. Instead, you should just do whatever you want to do to make yourself happy and forget about God. That's what Jesus is tempted to do in the wilderness. And when this happens, we need to remember Jesus in the wilderness with the wild animals and the angels. That's all he's got. The forces of evil come against Jesus, but he won't buckle. Instead, he'll endure everything the enemy throws at him for us. Here we need to give thanks that Jesus has got ahead of us. If you're worried about what 2024 has in store, remember that Jesus has gone ahead of you. If you're stressed that you won't be as successful or loved as you want to be in the coming year, know that Jesus endured temptation for you and his victory is yours. If you're feeling hurt or tired or sick or afraid, know that Jesus is beside you. He's gone through this hard and sometimes hopeless world and he will sustain you if you let him. Friends, there are lots of twists and turns to come in our study of this wonderful book of Mark. And as I close, I want to challenge you in 2024 to share this gospel with someone. Read Mark with a mate. This book is good news. It's the only news that can truly save a life for eternity. In the coming days, I want to encourage you to pray. Have a think about who you could read Mark with for the first time this year. Maybe it's a relative, like a grandchild or a friend. Maybe it's a neighbor or a co-worker. Maybe it's a mate you can meet with for coffee sometime or someone in your life who could do with a bit of good news. As we discover more about Jesus through Mark this year, let's think about how we can share the good news, how we can be the good news. Let's read Mark with a mate and delight in the good news of Jesus Christ, God's Son, our Saviour. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word, and particularly today for the Gospel of Mark. Thank you for how simple and down-to-earth it is. 
Thank you for how accessible it is. Thank you that 2,000 years ago, a man named Mark decided that we should hear the good news and that we have it preserved for us today. Thank you, Father, for Jesus' baptism and what it reminds us about your love. Thank you that even today you are speaking your pleasure and your love and your grace over us. You are filling us with your spirit. Be with us, Lord Jesus, as we step into 2024 and guide us in right pathways for your name's sake. Amen.